Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died and for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So uh, we continue this morning in a series in the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. We've come to chapter 6. And uh, I would say at the outset here that commentators and, and theologians agree that this chapter here, and really the next two or three chapters, are some of the hardest to understand in the entire Bible. Uh, someone asked the great Martin Lloyd-Jones one time why it, it took him so long to preach through the book of Romans. And he said, because it took me 20 years to figure out what chapter 6 meant, and I wasn't going to do it until I knew what chapter 6 meant. There's some really hard things. This is very dense theological material. Uh, but it's going to be fun over the next few weeks to be able to work our way through this, th really three weeks in this in this chapter 6 that we're going to spend. We could spend 30, uh, but we're trying to move in a prudent manner. Uh, I would say to you by way of introduction this, that in chapters 1 through 5, which again for months now we've been looking at, Paul has been explaining what God has accomplished for us. Pay attention to my prepositions here. For us, what God has accomplished for us through the gospel. Now, in chapter 6 through 8, he will begin to explain what God is accomplishing in us through the gospel. Romans 6 through 8 is material about how to experience the gospel. Now, that may sound strange. Does it sound strange? It sounds, a strange, it sounds strange saying it. I don't know how it hits your ears. Uh, how to experience the gospel. But it does get to the heart of where things go wrong for a lot of Christians, I believe. Jonathan Edwards, uh, back in the 18th century, distinguished between what he called experimental religion and experiential religion. Let me say those things again. Experimental and experiential religion. And, and by, by that differentiation, he meant that Christianity is more than an idealized moral code. It's more than a set of beliefs that you assent to. That's experimental religion. It's one thing to believe something to be true. It's another thing to experience it to be real. 
And that was, that was Edward's point. He was writing that, that great book that you know, is famous now uh, on religious affections. He was writing in the context of the Great Awakening in New England. And he was trying to really lay out and distinguish between all these people that were having these religious experiences. Well, which one of them were genuine religious experiences and which, which of them were really fake and, and not real? They were just of the flesh. That was, that was what he, he's getting at in this, design, in this distinction. And that really is what this passage is meant to do too, to distinguish between a genuine experience of grace and what is not. But what may look like one, but what in the final analysis really isn't. How do you experience grace? That's really the question. And so that's what these first 11 verses of this chapter are really about. We're going to go through all, all 11 of these verses. And really we're just going to work our way systematically through the text this morning, which is a little unusual. Something, everything about this morning is a little unusual. But I want you to see... I want you to see uh, where Paul turns a corner here, and I want in verse one. I want you to see the occasion for everything he writes in these in these verses, eleven verses. Secondly, I want you to see the doctrine that he lays out for us. That's in verse two. Then in verses three through ten, it, he uses an illustration to explain the doctrine, and then finally in verse eleven, he gives us an exhortation. And it's interesting; it's the first exhortation in the entire book. Romans six eleven is the first time. Paul has told us to do something in the entire letter that he's written to these people. And so we'll see those four things. The occasion, the doctrine, the illustration, the exhortation. Don't worry. Four points instead of three doesn't mean the sermon's going to be longer this morning. I think we'll be shorter, actually, than we normally are. Let's see. That's, our, that's the goal. So let's start with the occasion first. Just verse one. And let's talk about where Paul's been for just a minute. Paul has been laboring to explain the gospel of grace. That we are made right with God through faith, apart from works of the law. This is everything he's been saying in the first five chapters of this book. That the righteousness that we need is not through our doing. In fact, we have to stop doing. We have to, in the words of the old hymn, lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet in order to stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. A Christian is not a person who was bad and then became good. Christian is a person who knows that it doesn't matter if you're bad or good. What matters is that you're in Christ. That's Romans 5, 12 through 21. That's that whole section that we took so long trying to work our way through. Because righteousness has nothing to do with our moral performance. God doesn't grade our work. At least not when it comes to justification. Instead, the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. That's Paul's... That's what Paul's working, been working through in chapters 4 and 5. Now, the most dangerous spiritual condition then that you could be in is to be a rule follower because you think it's by keeping the rules that you get justification. No. Justification comes when you know you don't have it in you and you look outside of yourself. I said it like this last week, that God wants you to feel like a big sinner. Did that unsettle you at all? It's scary for me to even say that. That, that, I, that God wants you to feel like you're a big sinner because the main thing between you and him is not your sins. It's John Gerster says it's your damnable good works. That was R.C. Sproul's mentor. Salvation is by grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. This is chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Where there is no sin, there is no need for grace. So if all of your rule-keeping keeps you from feeling like a big sinner, it's actually hurting you spiritually. 
If you're winning in life and it makes you feel proud and self-confident, it's killing you spiritually. To quote from another hymn, spiritual health, spiritual fitness is to feel your need of him. And the law came, chapter 5, verse 20, according to Paul, alongside of sin, to increase our sense of sin. So, the, so he says the more sin, the more grace. That's basically those last few verses in chapter 5. The more sin, the more grace. Well, then you can understand if that's the case, then let's just get rid of the rules. If being a big sinner is the goal, then I am gonna, I can win at that race. I'm going to be the biggest sinner that I can possibly be. Martin Luther <laughs> took a lot of flack. Uh, you know, Luther just, uh, he's, you just got to love him. He infamously would go around telling people, sin boldly. I mean, don't be a little sinner, be a big sinner. Now, so the question comes then, does the gospel promote sin? Does saying, chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no man will be justified in God's sight, does that doctrine encourage people to sin? And, and that is the objection Paul anticipates. Look there at verse 1. Are we to continue in sin? What shall we say? Do we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, he assumes, he, know, he knows that what he's been preaching is radical grace. Uh, um, R.C. Sproul called it dangerous grace. This radical grace would lead to this to some people drawing this implication. Now, one thing here, the gospel isn't just grace, it's grace abounding. It's uh, if you look at verses 20 and 21, it, the language is hard, but it basically said it's abundantly abundant grace. In other words, so much grace that it makes you a little uneasy. If it doesn't feel like the gospel makes obedience irrelevant, then you've not gone far enough with grace. So go as far with grace as you can. Go so far that it takes you right to the edge of the cliff. And if you answer Paul's question in verse, in verse 1, shall we go on sinning with a yes? Let's go on sinning. Yeah, absolutely, we can do that because there's grace. Then you've fallen off the cliff, okay? You understand? Don't fall off the cliff. But what we got to do is you gotta go, you got to go far enough with grace that you come right up to the edge of the cliff. Does that make sense? So let me apply it to parenting for just a minute. If you're not a little bit worried that it's too much grace, then let me just submit you're not parenting with grace. In your friendships, if you're not just a little bit, you know what, am I showing too much grace here? You haven't gone far enough with grace yet. Grace is always in danger of becoming too much grace. Does that make sense? That's, that's what Paul's saying here. So grace is always in danger of becoming too much grace. Now notice Paul's objection Paul's answer, excuse me, to the objection before we move on to the second point. He doesn't say that we, should, we shouldn't go on sinning so that grace may abound. He says we can't. It's impossible. And that's, that's the point. Well, but why? Why does Paul say it's impossible? Well, his answer is, well, grace. Grace isn't an excuse for sin. It's the solution to sin. Paul, in other words, the way I put it in my notes, Paul solves the problem of grace with what? More grace. You see this? Grace is the solution to sin. It's not an excuse for sin. You're a Christian because something has been done to you, not because you've done something. And the question that Paul anticipates here assumes Christianity is a matter of what you do and don't do. But remember, it's not about you at all. That's the whole point of chapter 5. Christianity is about God acting for you. And if, because of grace, God acted for you in Christ, then because of that same grace, be assured that God, by bringing you into Christ, will act in you to change you in your deepest places. I need to say all that again. 
Okay? Let me say it all again. God, Christianity, because of grace, God acted for you in Christ. And then because of the same grace, you can be sure that he will act in you, bring you into Christ to change you in your deepest places and make it impossible for you to just go on sinning ever. But it's grace. See, it doesn't happen by going back to the law. You don't bring the law back in. That's what these people are wanting to do. Wait, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't we need to bring, let's bring the rules back in a little bit. Let's don't lose sight of the rules. Well, say, no, no, no. You don't bring the law back in. You don't need to be afraid of grace. If you or someone you know is having, having a problem with sin, it's not that you've gone too far with grace. It's that you've not gone far enough. So Paul says, we got to answer this question. Do we just go on sinning? That's the first thing. This occasion for everything that he says here. But the second thing is, well, what has happened then? If Christianity really is something that God has accomplished for us and in us through the gospel that makes us makes it impossible for us to, to you know, use grace as an excuse for sin, what exactly is it? And this is Paul's doctrine. So pick up in verse 2 here, and you see this phrase. What shall we say, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin? By no means. That's verse 2. And that is a very... Uh, that is a very strong statement. It, you really can't pick it up uh, in, in, um, in, in the English, what it means. In the, in the Greek, it's stuff you can't say in church. Really. It's not just no. It's like emphatic no, if you catch my drift. And then he goes on to say, how can we who, here it is, die to sin, live in it any longer? And so Paul's doctrine is that we have died to sin, and as a result, we can't go on living in it. And that's really the subject, subject of, of this talk this morning, that, that phrase. What does it mean that we've died to sin? And there's a negative and there's a positive here. And negatively, I want you to see that Paul says we've, we've died to sin. How can, we, how can we who died to sin live in it any longer? Verse 2. And the question, of course, is what exactly does this mean? But before we answer that, we would do well to say what it doesn't mean. Let's be careful here. Paul doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you'll, you will never sin. He doesn't mean you won't want to sin. He says you won't live in sin. And there's a huge difference, right? The Greek word is meno there. It, it means to live or dwell or make your home. It's sometimes translated abide, as in John 15, where we're told we abide in him, rather than here it's abide in sin. We can't abide in sin any longer. Paul's saying sin will always be there, but not a lifestyle of sin. So the Colossians 3 passage is why I picked it for the call to worship this morning. Paul lists a number of, of vices in verse 6. He says all these things, right? If you want to turn there, maybe, or look in your worship folder there. It might be good to do that. And you see in verse 6, he says these things that, that you know, all these things he lists. He says, uh, you know, evil desire, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, covetousness, and all these things that he begins to list. And then he goes in the very next verse and he says, verse 7, it's so important. He says, in these you once walked when you were living in them, when, when you were abiding in them. You once, you know, walked in these things when you were living in them, but not anymore. Something's happened. And I just want to make sure we understand that there's a difference between succumbing to sexual temptation and a lifestyle of sexual immorality. You can covet. You can walk in covetousness. And Paul is saying God has done something in you through the gospel that makes it impossible for you to ultimately maintain a lifestyle of sin. Now that's a generalization to some degree, and I don't have time for more specifics. 
Notice I use the word ultimately there. There can be periods of prolonged struggle with sin, but in the final sense, in the final ultimate analysis, grace prevails. That's what Paul's teaching. So, uh, what exactly then does he mean? And here we need to bring together a whole bunch of the statements that he makes here in Romans 6 without a whole lot of explanation because I just want to take them together. So if you just walk down the passage with me, uh, you'll see in verse 6 of chapter 6 in Romans, he says, now, part of what this death to sin means is, verse 6, that the old man or our old self, depending on your translation, was crucified. That the part of us, then, that, was, that is characterized by sin and selfishness, the flesh, as the Bible uses at other times, that that part of us has been crucified in Christ's death. It has died in Christ's death. He goes on to say, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that this sinful you know, the sinful tendency and sinful parts of our, of our inner lives uh, can be brought to nothing. That is not eradicated, but disabled and weakened into ineffectiveness. That's what that word means. So that, he goes on in verse 6, we are then no longer enslaved to sin. That's going to be our theme next week, so we'll leave that there. But then in verse 7, he continues and he says, All of this, for the one who has died, has been set free from sin. It's actually the word for righteousness there. It's a new position in regards to sin. Now, you, now you, you put all that into context, all these, all these ways Paul's you know, talking about the same thing. And it means something like this, that the moment you became a Christian, if you are one, you came out from being under the reign of sin and death and you came into the reign of grace. Whether your experience matches that reality or not. Sin is no longer the ruling power in your life. You guys are looking at me like I'm an alien. Are you with me? I mean, that, that... We are people locked in the deepest dungeons of hell. And I just told you that Jesus has thrown the doors open and set you free. Okay? No, I mean, really. Sin is no longer the ruling power over your life. Again, it doesn't mean you don't sin, but if you don't struggle, if you don't struggle, it's actually a sign that you're a slave to sin. The person who's a slave to sin is not the one who sins, it's the one who sins and doesn't know they're sinning. Doesn't feel the struggle of it. Doesn't feel the problem with it. A person who's enslaved to sin doesn't know they are, and even if they did, they couldn't do anything about it. Coming out of the reign of sin and death and into the reign of grace doesn't mean you're done with sin. It actually sets up the conflict. Perhaps an illustration. Uh, if, if a w wicked military force had complete control of a country and, and a good army invaded, uh, the good army could throw the wicked force out of power and give the capital and the seat of government in the country, you know, in, in communication and so forth, back to the people. But we all know from history and from experience that the out-of-power soldiers could still live out in the bush as a guerrilla force. They could create havoc for the new rightful government. That's the image. If you're a Christian, grace is to pose sin. Sin still wages guerrilla warfare against your soul, but the point is sin is not in control anymore. It's still a huge problem, but it's not in control anymore. And that, that's Tim Keller's illustration. He goes on to summarize. He says, and this was so helpful to me, and I hope it will be for you. He says, though you may obey sin, and though the Bible predicts that you will obey sin, the truth is you no longer have to obey it. We've died to sin. That's the negative. 
But also positively, Paul says, and he goes on from that chapter 6, verse 2, in all this language and imagery here to describe that we've been united with Christ too. And so the theme, you remember, of, of union with Christ, which started back in chapter 5, verse 10, carries through all the way really through chapter 8. And it's the language here being joined together. We've been united to him in a death like his. We've been united to him in a in our life like his. It's this, this idea of being grafted together. It describes an organic connection, being planted. Listen to this. This is, this is such an... If your faith is in Jesus, you have been planted into the roots of the person and work of Christ himself. That's what that means. That God has taken your life and he has planted you into the very roots of who Jesus was and the amazing work that he did for us. And so Paul says, Galatians 2, we're co-crucified with Christ. We've been, there in verse 5, united to him in his death. That is something legal and forensic, but it's something more than that. It's also something experiential. This is hard, but listen, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Sin died in his death. A part of us died. The old man, we're told, the old self was crucified with him. So a part of the body of sin... These are the phrases Paul uses, but if we're united to him in a death like his, then what Paul goes on to say here in these verses is that we're also united to him in his life. And you can't have one without the other. Verse 8, look there. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The gospel is Jesus died and was raised, and if you're united to him, if you're united to him in his death and also in his resurrection... Uh, then it's all or nothing. If you take part in his death, then you take part in the resurrection too. And his resurrection, power, and life has been planted in you. And so, see, this whole idea, you can't have forgiveness without a changed life. Because there's no justification without sanctification. That's the argument Paul's making. Do we go on saying that grace may abound? No, it's impossible. Why? Because we've been raised with Christ in the newness of life, he says. Now we walk not, not walking minnow, not walking in sin. Now we walk, verse 4, look, in newness of life. And that's the doctrine. But this part of Romans is profoundly doctrinal, and doctrine can be hard to understand. And so the third thing we see is that Paul offers an illustration to make his doctrine vivid. And he talks, beginning in verse 3, look there, about baptism. So he says we're being buried with him into death and then raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. Now, obviously, this seems to point to immersion, going down into the water and coming back up out of it, which is why we have baptized people by immersion. It's a helpful mental image, I think. But the mode of baptism isn't the point. It's not a sermon on that. Baptism isn't even the point. Uh, baptism is connected to other imagery that would suggest other modes as well, so we're not going to get into all of that. Uh, that's not the point. What, what, what Paul is using this, this image, this vivid metaphor to bring out is that Christianity is a, an experience of death and resurrection. A Christian doesn't just believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. A Christian is a person who has experienced their own death and resurrection by being united to him. Do you understand the difference there? I can't emphasize enough the importance of this. But we have to get this right. Christianity is more than moral improvement. It's an entirely new life. It's not bad people becoming good people. It is dead people coming to life. 
It is death and resurrection. Something comes to an end. Something new begins. To become a Christian does not mean you just modify your former life a little bit. And there's a slight adjustment, right? There's just a brush up or an add-on of some kind. It is the ugly caterpillar crawling in the cocoon and emerging as a beautiful butterfly. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? It seems that we are improving, but still very much the same as we've always been, but we're not. That's Paul's point. If you're a Christian, something has died and something new has been born. The old has passed away. The new has come, and the new thing is nothing like the old. It's the caterpillar and the butterfly, and it's hard to imagine, right? The one, the ugly, most, the most beautiful butterflies are the ugliest caterpillars, right? How did that come from that? And really, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point in your life, somebody needs to come up to you and say, how did that come from that? Ephesians 2, for example, the other passage we chose is an assurance of pardon. In verses 1 through 3, Paul explains how we are dead to sin. We're dead, excuse me, how we're dead in sin. Dead in trespass and sin. Ephesians 2, 5 through 10 explains how we are dead to sin. So we, we go from being dead in sin to being dead to sin. You think that's a profound difference? From dead in sin to dead to sin. And verse 4 is the hinge. And when I read it, you know, I pause. But God. James Montgomery Boyce once said, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. Every Christian testimony is a but God story. And some are more dramatic than others, for sure. But everyone has that element. Uh, there's a story told of St. Augustine. And if you don't know St. Augustine's uh, you know, history, he struggled for years to trust in Christ because he was sexually promiscuous. And he knew that to become a Christian, he would have to give up his, other, his lovers. And honestly, for years, he wasn't willing to do it. I mean, how refreshing. I know i got to give this up, and I don't know that I'm willing to do it. And he really just vacillated back and forth. He had a mom who was praying for him, though, and that's a dangerous weapon in the hands of God. And so then he was radically converted. And the story is told that as he was walking down the street one day after becoming a Christian, an old mistress, one of his favorites, uh, saw him and began to shout after him, but he just kept walking. I guess he did the bounce technique or whatever, you know, he just kept going. She assumed that he must not have recognized her. And so this old favorite mistress of his ran up and, you know, trying to woo him into, you know, the afternoon or and sometimes in those days it was like a week-long tryst, you know, come away with me, let's, let's go away. And she thought, maybe he doesn't recognize me, so she ran up to him and she said, Augustine, it is I, it is I. To which he replied, yes, I know, but it is no longer I. See, that's, that's the issue. I mean, what's your, what's your but God story? I mean, if you're a Christian, you have one. You may not know. I mean, you may need to look a little closer to find it. But I promise you, if you're a Christian, you have one. And if you don't have one, then, then you've got to do some work. You've got to do some hard work. And make sure. Make sure it hasn't just become an add-on. Make sure, you know, believing isn't just this, you know, just believing. Instead of that, that God really has come to work in your, in your heart. And that's why Paul says, go on sinning. Impossible. We're dead to sin. We were dead in sin. Now we're dead to sin. The, nothing, the new thing is nothing like the old. Death and resurrection. The old is gone and the new has come. Think of the imagery of going down into death and coming up 
and being raised in the power of the resurrection of Christ himself into newness of life. But then lastly, and the last thing we see is that as we come down to verse 11, we see that there's an exhortation. So we ask, so what? Right? Isn't that important to ask? So what? All this is, you know, great doctrinal teaching, but what, what really is the, what's the application? What do I do with it? In verse 11 is the first exhortation in the letter to Rome, of Romans. It's the first time Paul's told us to do something. Well, what does it tell us to do? Let's look. This is, this is my favorite. This is great. He says, so, in light of all that I've said to you, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin. But he says, but now you need to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So for five chapters, Paul has been laying out his gospel. The first time he tells us to do something, he says, here's what I want you to do. Remember everything I've been telling you. Paul's exhortation in Romans is to believe. Because behavior follows belief. If you believe rightly, you will eventually begin to behave rightly. And so the problem, Paul says, is that there are things that you should know that you don't know. So this comes up throughout the verses. If you look with me, verse 3, he says, do you not know? And then in verse 6, we know. Verse 8, we believe. Verse 9, we know. You see this? Do you see how many times this word comes up? So success in Christianity is a matter of knowing. It's doctrine. That's why Paul's been laboring all this time to get this content out, because the content is important. It's why we want to catechize our children, because content is crucial in the Christian faith. But it's not enough just to know. You've got to use what you know, and that's this word in verse 11, consider. It's an accounting term. It literally, literally, it's the word logistics. So there is truth that is latent in your heart, Paul says, and you've got to activate it. You've got to bring it up to the level of consciousness. So in Matthew 6, for example, Jesus says, remember this, if you're anxious, what's your problem? He says, if you're anxious, it's because you've forgotten some really important truths. And the way to battle your anxiety is to consider, remember, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. He says, really, you've got to take your mind and you've got, to drill, you've got to think out the implications of what you know. You've got to drill the truth of God's love and fatherly care down into your heart until it overthrows your anxiety. You gotta take yourself in hand. You gotta remind yourself of the truth. Right? I've died to sin. I'm alive to God. I, I'm no longer dead in sin. I've died to sin. And now I'm alive to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is true of me, even when it doesn't feel like it's true of me. Even when I can't see it in my life. That's what this word means. It's actually the same word as in chapter 4 God counted Abraham righteous. It's the same word. Abraham was credited with righteousness even though he wasn't righteous. So Paul says, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God even when you can't get yourself to feeling like it's true. As you do that, here's the amazing thing. Paul says, what will happen in your life is as you count yourself dead to sin and alive to God, you will actually begin to become what you already are. And that's the essence of Christian ethics, to become what you already are. To experience as reality what you know to be true doctrinally, or as Edwards put it, for your religion to move from being just experimental to being experiential. So let me ask this question as we come to the table this morning. Do you know the gospel to be true? Are you experiencing it to be real in the, in, in the way that it's changing you? Do you see this? Do you know it to be true? But not just that. 
Are you experiencing it to be real in the way that it's changing you? Because that is how you know it to be true. Is the gospel changing you? That's the question we'll have to answer this morning. And so let's pray together as we prepare to come to his table. And we pray with me. So, Father, we thank you for the great promises of this text. What great work you've done. And how 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 um, how prone we are to make little and to make light of what you've done and to not fully grasp the greatness of this work of the gospel in Jesus that is ours. That that Jesus not only died and was raised for our sins, but he was died and was raised so that we might experience a death and resurrection of our own. That the Holy Spirit would be, would be sent into the world and into our hearts to apply the work of Christ to us in our own death and resurrection so that we might no longer be dead in sin, but dead to it and raised to walk in newness of life. That is, that is what is true of those who belong to you who are in Christ. And it's so much bigger than we often conceive of Christianity, so forgive us and cause our imaginations to explode with the reality of the gospel so that it takes us into new dimensions of obedience and faithfulness that we never knew possible before. That is our hope, and that is our prayer. And so even as we come to your table now, will you, will you use this meal and our time together around this table Drill home these truths to our hearts until they do change us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so uh, go knowing if your faith is in Christ that he goes with you. That's the promise of this benediction. Uh, that, that all of the, the work that he has done in the gospel is not only for you but in you and now through you to the places that he sends you. Um, receive the words of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.